Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The sacred Torah of the Jewish people is split into 54 Torah portions known in Hebrew as parashiot. And as many of you know, the Jewish people usually read one Torah portion each Shabbat. However, there are 14 parashiot Torah portions that, depending on the particular year, can be paired together so that two Torah portions would be read on that Shabbat. The basic issue, there are a number of reasons why Parshiot are doubled up, and some reasons specifically apply to certain pairings. The basic issue is that although we split the Torah into 54 parashiot, a regular Jewish year has 353 to 355 days. That leaves us with 50 to 51 Shabbatot on which to read the Torah portion. Additionally, when a Jewish holiday coincides with a special with Shabbat, we read the special holiday reading instead of the weekly Torah portion. This leaves us with a maximum of 48, though some years fewer weeks in a regular year, on which to read 50 poor portions. Now, technically, we only need 53 Shabbatot since the last portion of Deuteronomy, Vazot HaPracha, is traditionally read on the holiday known as Simchat Torah. In order to reconcile the weekly cycle of parashiot, Torah portions, with the number of Shabbat available, we need to double up some of the parashiot. And in a Jewish leap year, when the people of Israel add an extra month consisting of 30 days, which includes four more Shabbatot, Uh, Thus, in a leap year, we have a lot fewer double portions. There are four portions that are made on regular years. The regular year, of which this is one, is Vayikahel Bakpikudei. Tazria and Mitzora, Acharei Kedoshim, and Bahar Bahukotai. This Shabbat, in which we're addressing ourselves, there is a double portion known as Vikahel and Pikudei. And I want to address myself to what's happening in those two portions and then introduce my guest to speak about them. The two portions run from Exodus 35, verse 1, to Exodus 40, verse 38. We read in these parashiot that Moses assembles the people of Israel and reiterates to them the commandment to observe Shabbat, which was also reiterated last week in the Torah portion. He then conveys God's instructions regarding the making of the Mishkan, or the tabernacle in English, and people donate the required materials in abundance. 
They donate so much, as opposed to last week where they were only obligated to donate half a shekel. Now they're bringing gold and silver and copper and dyed wool and goat's hair. They bring so much that Moses has to stop them. According to the text, a group of wise-hearted artisans make the Mishkan and its furnishings and three layers of roof coverings. They also make the ark and its covering with cherubim, the table and its showbread, the seven-branch menorah with its specially prepared oil, the golden altar, the outdoor altar used for burnt offerings, as well as many, many other accoutrements of the temple sanctuary. The two Torah portions tell us that an accounting is made of the gold, silver, and copper donated by the people for the making of the Mishkan, and the artisans make the eight priestly garments, the ephod, the breastplate, the cloak, the crown, the turban, the tunic, the sash, the breeches, according to the specifications communicated to Moses in the Torah portion, Titzaveh, which was read three weeks ago in synagogues. The Mishkan is completed, and all its components are brought to Moses, who erect it and anoint it with holy oil, and initiates Aaron and his four sons into the priesthood. The Torah portion then concludes with a cloud appearing over the Mishkan, signifying the divine presence that has come to dwell in it. There is so much in the Torah portion that it is almost impossible to speak to the entirety of it in one show. But with me this morning is Rabbi Joshua Goldstein of New Jersey, who is going to help me unpack the variety of issues in the Torah portion. Rabbi Goldstein, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you so much, Rabbi Garden. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and we have the unique opportunity this year to talk about a double portion, Vayikahel and Pikudei. And I'm wondering if uh, it would be helpful for our audience if you just gave them a brief overview of how you see the two Torah portions coming together. Sure. Um, Every now and then in our calendar, we will have two or double Torah portions so that it fits into the calendar year. And in this case, as Rabbi Garden mentioned, they're called Vayakhel, which is Hebrew for convened, as in Moses convened the Israelites to give instructions for the design of the tabernacle. That's the name of the first portion. And the second one's called Pekudei, which is actually the last portion of the book of Exodus. And it offers implicit instructions for how to set up the tabernacle. So both of them are are very much related, all focusing on the ancient tabernacle. As I mentioned to Rabbi Garden before we went on, um, some people think of this as a dreaded Torah portion because it doesn't seem to have easy applications to our lives. And I, uh, but I, I, I've always discovered that even those portions that you think are not going to have very easy applications, often if you look closely enough, 
become very, very um, interesting uh, material for, for us to consider. That's wonderful. So we're going to look at two uh, aspects of these Torah portions to begin with. Uh, one is in chapter uh, 39, uh, or in the middle of chapter 38, verse 21, which starts the portion Pikudei, it tells us, Elu Pikudei HaMishkan. These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the pact. And so we understand that from both the Hebrew and from uh, history, that it's referring to what would have been the ancient sanctuary. In addition, as we pursue the Torah portion, it leads us in chapter 40, uh, which begins, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first of the month, Takim et hamishkan ohel moed. And so on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And so the text seems to give us uh, two very differently I understood locus for the Israelites to worship. One it calls a tabernacle, and one it calls a tent of meeting, a mishkan and an ohel moed. And I thought that that might be a good place for you, Rabbi Goldstein, to offer us some understanding of these two uh, apparently different, but perhaps similar, uh, locus for intersection between the Jewish people, the Israelites, and their God. Yeah, Rabbi Garden, I, I understand it exactly as you just mentioned. You know, they're very, very similar in terms of the concept of tent of meeting, tabernacle, but also I think they, they probably had different purposes. So here's my understanding. Um, as the, our people are wandering following Revelation at Sinai, um, they feel the need for some tangible place that they could go to, to recall that they had this inspirational event at Sinai. I think that's, that's where it all comes from, from my understanding. They need a place to reinforce that experience that they had at Sinai. Um, and, and so we get the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself is, uh, you know, uh, gives direct um, measurements for how much, it should, how, how large it should be and what goes in it, um, altars and, and sacrifices and things like that. Um, and then you hear about Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, um, which I think in some ways has a similar kind of concept behind it in the, in the sense that the Israelites needed a tangible place again where they could feel a sense of spirituality, a sense of godliness. It might not have had all the accoutrements that the tabernacle had, but it would serve as another place where they could reinforce a sense of, of spirituality. And I'll go beyond that, too. Let's go back to the Mishkan. Um, the, so there, when we speak of the Mishkan, we're speaking of what the text calls the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Exactly. So wandering in the wilderness meant that you could not, you know, 
build something permanent because uh, clearly we were wandering and we would not be able to build something permanent to reinforce that Sinai experience until we until we arrived at the promised land. So that's what what, what the tabernacle itself was. It was like a um, overriding kind of grand synagogue, if you will, but a movable synagogue, a synagogue that could be, um, you know, uh, that could be uh, taken down and put up and and, uh, established wherever the Israelites were. Uh, I I kind of, I I certainly understand that in, in terms of its application for our time. I think we also, in the 21st century, whether we're Jewish or not Jewish, often need a place that we can call home, but not just home, a sacred home, some place that is very special to us. Um, Rabbi Garden will know this, you know, if I allude to uh, places like uh, uh, Ebbets Field or Yankee Stadium, I'm sort of half-joking here, you know, some of us who are sports fans think of those places as, as kind of sacred, but what we're talking about in these portions is much, much deeper than that, obviously. It's, well, it's, Canadians it's would understand the metaphor if you spoke about Maple Leaf Gardens, the old Maple Leaf Gardens, the home of the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team, and the original uh, hockey venue in Montreal. Uh, that became uh, certainly uh, iconic. And people would remember their experiences there in the same way that you're alluding to uh, sporting venues in the States. Uh, One of the things I wanted you to comment on, which seems to be of um, quite a bit of interest, both to me and I think to our listeners, is that the Mishkan, the sanctuary, is highly ornate, Uh, And you have uh, synagogues and churches and mosques that are ornate, and they have been through the generations. Um, And then the Ohel Moed seems to be the antithesis of that. We don't have a lot of description of uh, the... Uh, accoutrements that accompany the Ohel Moed. And one could suggest that there came a time in sacred uh, space architecture that um, churches and synagogues and mosques became less ornate and more utilitarian. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you understand, besides changes in uh, personal taste or perhaps changes in wealth, how do you understand the notion of worshiping in a uh, beautiful locale versus worshiping in a more comfortable, less decorous uh, uh, place? I use the word place as in Macomb. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Gardner, I, I think of them as almost being complementary of each other, or maybe the better word is one is a corrective of the other. So you have the ornate Mishkan tabernacle um, filled with, with, you know, probably beautiful objects and ritual objects and you know, a lot of sacred material. And then you have the uh, kind of plain tent. And, and by definition, a tent means a temporary dwelling. 
and it's not fancy. The Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, was was there again just to reinforce that sense of spirituality. But I think it also had a reminder to it, to our people, that you can um, engage in spirituality uh, any place you want. It doesn't have to be an incredibly beautiful, ornate uh, area. It, it can be as plain as a tent. And this really hits home for me, Rabbi Garden, because I was the rabbi for 30 years in a community in New Jersey. And like a lot of other congregations, we just heard that that congregation, where I'm the rabbi emeritus, is going to be closing its doors in June. So people typically will say, well, Rabbi Golson, you're, you're, you must be heartbroken. Yeah, part of me is very heartbroken, but part of me remembers this Torah portion, Rabbi Garden, because it, it sort of is a corrective. It tells me that no matter how wonderful and beautiful the synagogue in Springfield was, the story of our people is a story of movement. It's not a, what's, what, what is, what is significant to us is not how beautiful the building is, but what actually goes on inside the building. And I think the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting, is, is in that way, is a corrective to the, the, um, to the idea of a mishkan, of an ornate place for, for us to engage with it, spirituality. It's almost as if, um, if you consider, and I would ask the listeners to do so as well, that the temple sacrificial cult was designed for the priesthood. And the priests, uh, the descendants of Aaron and his children, uh, had the primary responsibility for the upkeep and the maintenance of the temple and also for offering the sacrificial uh, offerings. In the uh, original Catholic Church, it was primarily the priesthood and the hierarchy, which had the opportunity and the responsibility for offering the Mass and for ensuring that the uh, artifacts were beautifully gilded. Um, But the Ohel Moed and perhaps the later churches and synagogues became a democratization of worship, that we were no longer relegated to a particular uh, dynastic class of clergy, and we weren't uh, limited to clergy who made um, uh, significant life sacrifices um, to lead the people, but in fact, uh, rabbis uh, are not priests, and uh, ministers uh, go out of their way to indicate that they're not priests. They are conduits to God, but not necessarily intermediaries. And so the Ohel Moed, as you suggested, is really about offering people an opportunity to find a spiritual home without uh, the requirement of an intermediary. Would that be the way you'd understand it? Yeah, and, and not only that, Rabbi Garden, but I also think that is a pattern in our history, too. <clears throat> I remember actually speaking with you when we were in Florida for a conference about this and about a debate I had with a more traditional Jewish friend of mine about whether um, Hasidism, the Hasidic movement, was created because of a, a sense of, of a caste system where we had the, the um, Jews who were 
great scholars on one side and the Jews who were common folk on the other side, and the common folk felt a bit unfulfilled. And along comes Hasidism, the Hasidic movement, to democratize uh, that situation. There's another part of that story also, but that's a pattern, I, I think, Rabbi Garden, that I that I think actually goes on in a lot of our history, and um, the the need to to um, offer our people a sense that they matter too, that they're it's not simply a a caste system in Judaism, if it ever was, but that all of us um, have, uh, you know, the, uh, can be conduits to God, I guess. So, yeah, I think the point's well taken. And I thank you for that. And in the time that's remaining, maybe we can find a segue to something that you feel very strongly about, and that is... The notion that in uh, while Vikva Pikude talks about the tabernacle and the Ohel Moed, in the first parasha of this double parasha, there's the notion of the contributions that the Israelites make. And there's a um, difference in the nature of contributions in this week's parasha from those in Truma. I indicated in our introduction that in parasha Truma, the uh, Israelites were asked to make a contribution of a half shekel. But in this parasha, they are invited to bring goods for the adornment of the sanctuary. Um, and there is something different uh, about that. And I'm wondering how you see the difference between making a contribution of a half shekel and making a contribution in kind. Yeah, great distinction, Rabbi Garden. I think um, what we see in these two Torah portions that we're talking about today by Yakel Pakude. Uh, sort of an open-ended um, solicitation for contributions, as opposed to the portion you were just speaking about where a half shekel is mentioned. Here there's no specific amount, just, you know, bring whatever you can to help us establish this uh, tabernacle. And uh, what what jumps out at me, I think, is that the people responded and apparently responded above and beyond what was what was required for the for the tabernacle and i think that may have had something to do with the experience that they had at sinai and the ongoing feeling that they were inspired by that experience and that they had you know the the that a new heritage was being created that was inspirational. So I think my point is that when people feel inspired by a cause, we we want to make a donation. We want to make a contribution. It doesn't require a rabbi on the bema saying, well, this is our time to ask you for donations. People spontaneously do it because they have that experience of inspiration behind them. Um, so that that's one thought that jumps out at me. <clears throat> the other is in the, in the uh, portion Pekude, I think it is Bitzalel, B E T Z A L L E L, is the name of the chief architect or artisan of the tabernacle, and he's described, I think, in one verse as being a very talented artist. 
some people look at that and say, that doesn't sound Jewish. Judaism is supposed to be all about books and study. What, where does the artistry come from? Um, so what those people are missing, I think, is that we indeed do have a deep and, and fulfilling tradition of creative creativity and creative arts. And that is manifested if, if you, you, when you look at all the beautiful Haggadahs, the beautiful Passover Seder books, the Ketubahs, the, the, the beautiful marriage document, Ketubot, the Talitot, the beautiful uh, prayer shawls, funny because uh, my wife Sally just had a big birthday. I think Rabbi Garten knows that. And I said to her, what do you want? And she said, uh, you know what? I've never had a talit, a prayer shawl. And, um, and so I, I said, can I buy you one? And she said, yeah. And it turns out you know, to be an incredibly beautiful talit that does reflect on the uh, creativity of our people that is probably first alluded to in this portion, Exodus 35, verse 31, where B'tzalel is mentioned. So those two ideas jump out at me also. Well, it also strikes me, as you mentioned, B'tzalel, the artisan, that it uh, suggests that there are really three kinds of gifts. So there's the gift of the half shekel from Parashat Trumah, there's the gifts that are enunciated at the beginning of this week's parasha in which people bring uh, gold and silver, but it also says they bring crimson yarns and fine linen and goat's hair and tanned ram skins and dolphin skins and acacia wood and oil for lighting and spices for the anointing oil and for aromatic incest and lapis lazuli and other stones for setting on the ephod and the breastplate of the priesthood. All of that would suggest that people are giving uh, something that they have made or something that is part of their livelihood. It doesn't suggest that they went out and bought these things. Uh, and then there's the artisans who give of their God-given talent. Um, and so the text is telling us in many ways, as you've alluded to, that how you serve God can come in many different forms. Beautiful. And and I'm struck by as you spoke about Bitzalel and the artisans, that in this conversation about the construction of the Ohel Moed and of the tabernacle, Aaron and Moses are somewhat absent. That their leadership, uh, which is uh, taken for granted in other sections of the portion, is minimalized in these two portions. And the peoplehood of Israel are uh, risen, are uh, offered the opportunity to rise up and offer their own leadership and their own connection to God. That's very helpful. Thank you, Rabbi Goldstein. Um, My pleasure. My uh, pleasure. Now, our time is really running short. And so I wanted to ask you one other question, um, and that was in the notion of uh, a double portion. In the traditional Jewish synagogue, are two portions read in their entirety um, and two prophetic readings, or do synagogues choose one of the two? Well, I can't speak, Rabbi Garden, for a lot of traditional synagogues. Our, our Orthodox brothers and sisters have their own 
variations, just like liberal Judaism does too. And I would, but I would imagine, and I don't have the definitive answer. I have to admit that. I would imagine that in most Orthodox, if not the, the, the overwhelming majority of Orthodox synagogues, yeah, both portions I think are read in full. Whether or not they read two haftarot, two haftorahs, two books from the prophets, typically um, two portions from the prophets. Just not sure about that. Okay. But I'll have an answer for you next year when you call me again to do an interview. I will love to do that. Rabbi <laughs> Joshua Goldstein of New Jersey, I want to thank you for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Shalom and have a good day. Behold.